You know, we, we read the Torah every year. Obviously, we start it over. And, uh, you know, some people might get bored with that, but I don't know how. This is a, this is a twisty book here. We have got, we've got so much going on from creation and talking beasts. This is what we've already covered. Floods, we had an ark, we have covenants, we have, we have cities destroyed, we have wives turned into salt. We have miraculous births, we have near tragic deaths, we have romance. I mean, this is an awesome story that would rival any script that could be created in Hollywood. And, you know, the, the bottom line, though, is more and more, maybe it's the older I get, maybe it's the more I teach, but what we, what we see in the Bible, obviously, it's, it's a story by God, but it's about people. That's the thing we read in the Bible. That's the, the connection is, whether you think about it or not, what, what we're really learning from, obviously, is these people. Humanity, psychology, the study of the human mind, behavioral and relationship science, sociology, anthropology, the study of human societies and their developments. And from Genesis 1 with this cosmic creation and then into Genesis 2, this man and then or the, the, uh, Genesis 6, we get into Noah. We have cosmic creation down to family, down to man, one man, Abraham. And then now we move into the expansion of that man, land and descendants. Land and descendants. And you know, the truth of the matter is if we look at it from a people perspective, already in Abraham's life, they needed a marriage counselor. Abraham and Sarah, I mean, you had the Hagar-Sarah thing. You had the Ishmael difficulty. That was very, very hard on Abraham. And then we move into his son who emerges as the child of promise. And we have this very strange interaction between father and son. We don't know a lot about it. It doesn't really tell us a lot about the psychology and the interaction. We're left to try to, to ponder that. And then there's the question between man and God in that. Abraham asking questions. He had to have asked questions. So now we move into the next big relationship uh, 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 crisis, maybe. His sons. We had Isaac, the child of promise, and now his sons. And that conflict begins where? In utero. In utero, there's a conflict. And man, the drama that unfolds here, the word, who is, the word spoken to the mom to say, here's what you need to be aware of. But obviously, she didn't feel that it was necessary to communi- communicate it to Isaac, or so it would seem at the end. Another instance where a marriage counselor could be helpful. What good, marriage, what good couple doesn't know communication is the basis of, of healthy marriage, Right? But we have the boys wrestling in Rebecca's womb. They come out in dramatic fashion. You have the smooth one grabbing the hairy one by the heel. And then the, the, the deception, right? The deception and the, and the blessings and the pledge from one brother to kill his other brother. No, I'm going to run away. And I mean, it's like, Wow. And one of the, the craziest parts, the, some of the best parts of this, all of these stories, is the commentary. 
because it is and has been for thousands of years Judaism trying to focus on the people, the relationships, the behaviors, the lessons that we take out of it. And man, the commentaries, asking questions, finding answers, creating scenarios. And of course, they're based on the biblical text. But it's really one of the favorite parts of my job is to read the text straight up and then look at hundreds of commentaries and hundreds of opinions. And, and that's what makes Torah study incredibly special is, and we pride ourselves on it at Shalom Macon, healthy pride. Listen, this is my interpretation. This is mine. Okay, I don't agree. I don't agree. We can find a little morsel of something we can agree on. But at the end of the day, we'll get back together next week and we'll do it again. Because we're in it together to learn to be better people from the people we're here. It's, it, I, I love the, the, the thoughts and writings of the sages through the ages trying to figure these things out. Now, there is a lot, a lot of commentary that surrounds all of the patriarchs, particularly Abraham, particularly Jacob. If I could tell you the, the number of opinions that swirl out there about Jacob and Esau, first of all, we'd be here all day. Who's the hero? Who's the villain? Is there a villain? I mean, were they, were they doing the right thing? Is there a heroine? Is anyone good? Or did everyone miss the mark here? Because there's a lot going on. Some opinions have suggested that Esau is terrible. Esau is lower than common, as they say in South Africa. That's one opinion. And, and later in, in Jewish interpretation, you know, one of Esau's names that he gets in this week's Torah portion is Edom. Edom, he eats the red, red stuff. And Edom in Judaism, Esau to Edom, later on, Edom becomes what? Rome and the Gentile nations of oppression for Jews. You don't want to be Rome. You don't want to be the guy who descended Rome, who tortured, killed, maimed, destroyed the second temple. Rome still has a terrible terrible reputation in Judaism. Rome, this big global picture in it all, in this opinion goes back to Esau, because he was a terrible person. That's one opinion. Other opinions suggest he's not terrible. He's just, he's just base, like he's just common. He's, he likes to go out in the field and kill things. And, you know, Judaism today, and, and for some period of time, not big fans of hunting, although if you look at the original Torah text, that's not really in there. There was hunting, there were things, but later developments and, and interpretations again said, nah, we don't hunt. I can't get away with saying that in the South. I'd be fired if I tell people you... you. <laughs> We'd have a picket in the parking lot, people holding up deer antlers and turkey feathers. Another view, Esau's okay, Jacob's doing what must be done. It's just life, man. It's just life. They're, they ha they're just doing what they do. And, and that's the way it is. You got to do what you got to do. We're doing our deal. This is how it needed to work out. And then there's one last, well, of the four most common, that Esau is the victim. That Esau is, is, is a, a, an innocent victim of Jacob's treachery. And we all know this one very well. It's Jacob the deceiver. Right? Jacob the deceiver. 
And that has stuck around in some very interesting ways. It's made its way into anti-Semitism very strongly. It's made its way into Christian interpretation along the years. A Dominican friar encountered Rav Yosef on the road to Paris and said to him, Your father Jacob was a thief. There has been no usurer like him. For a single bowl of lentils that was worth half a coin, he purchased the birthright, which was worth more than a thousand coins. In other words, Jacob is a deceiver. He's a foul creation. He's a typical money-grubbing Jew. And it started way back. It's very strange how people find the basis for their hatred within the Bible. It happens a lot. It's happened through the ages a lot. But you remember, we're, we're learning about people. And on the most basic level, when you read this story straight up as a story about people, families, interactions, you take away that commentary and opinion. On the plain read, this is a tragedy. It's, it's very, very sad what happens here. I mean, the story of Jacob and Esau. No matter, no matter who Esau was, brothers should be brothers, right? Blood is thicker than water, as they say. Brothers should be brothers. Now, this isn't the last brotherly squabble we're going to encounter. Actually, we already had one. When was it? Somebody ended up dead. And interestingly, and maybe I think this might be the direction we'll finish up next week, but in that scenario... The, el- the younger surpassed the older again. Remember? Seth. Cain was, ugh, you're out. Seth, the line of promise came through Seth. The book of Genesis ends with another brotherly squabble. Who's that? Joseph and his brothers. Why? Because the younger is exalted. I mean, this thing seems to happen a lot. But Esau and Isaac, and honestly, the, the Torah speaking here, Forget about later interpretation. Even forget we read Malachi today and it talks about Esau and Edom and, you know, terrible. But honestly, the Torah does not really say anything bad about Esau. He's not really maligned in the story when you read it. When Esau, and and, and listen to this, at the most dramatic moment when this story is coming into full focus, when Esau heard his father's words, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, bless me also, father. Do you only have one blessing? Bless me also, father. And Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. What human being with a heart could not feel compassion for the man at that time? I mean, even if he was bad. And when you know the backstory that Esau's mom conspired to some degree against her son, forget about the commentary. I'm telling you the straight read. That's what you get when you read. And it's sad. And it's not hard to see how Jacob is viewed negatively. Over what? What is this about? It's about a birthright, right? A birthright. And that brings up a question. Do we even know what a birthright is? I mean, if, 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 if this is what Jacob's being judged for, maybe we should know 
what they're fighting for. Do we know? Sure we do. Firstborn, he gets all the money, right? Double blessing and, and, and power and prestige. The firstborn, that birthright, double blessing. Birthrights, double portions, that's all over the Torah. Well, not really. You find it here. You find it in Devarim. And you find it in First Chronicles 5, which interestingly is talking about Reuben, who is the oldest, being overshadowed by the younger, Joseph's sons. Birthright. You find the word bichorah is also used. It talks about first animals, firstlings. But when it comes to human beings, that's really all we have about birthrights. And as I said, if, if, if Jacob is so desperate and money-grubbing and hungry to get this, we should really, we should know. Does that sound like Jacob, like a money-grubbing Jew? Well, is that what he was after? I, I heard, actually, Sam sent me an email. I had already written my whole message, and Sam sent me an email from uh, Baruch Corman, who was quoting Andy Stanley doing a message on this situation, this story. And I mean, he threw Jacob under every bus and train and horse he could trample him under. Jacob, the deceiver, the foul, hating, shallow, money one. And that is, I'm telling you, you may know it, you may not. That's, that's a thing. I read another commentary this week, and I read a lot to, to try to make sure that I'm not just finding exactly what I want, because that's easy to do on the internet. But there is, there's a common theme that you come across, and I read this on a, on a, on a I don't remember which Bible site it was. This incident, Jacob and Esau, also says a lot about one's value of a spiritual things. Esau values stew more than the birthright, while Jacob values the birthright more than his own integrity. Goes on to say, of course there's an ethical problem with Rebekah and Jacob. If God is a God of truth, this is the opposite of truth. It's a sin. It's unrighteous. And though it is quite in keeping with Jacob's opportunistic and deceptive character so far, it's hardly worthy of approval, except perhaps by shrewd people who value expediency over integrity. So if you find value in what Jacob did, you're a person who values expediency over integrity. Did you know that? By some opinions. Is that the man Jacob is? Is that the man Jacob will demonstrate himself to be? Well, from the beginning of the story, I want to tell you how the Bible describes him in Genesis 25, 27. I've talked about this many, many years ago. I remember it. It was right when I was starting yeshiva, and I learned this like amazing thing. Jacob is described as an ishtam. That's how he's described. Esau is, a, is like a man of the field, right? Jacob is an ishtam. In Hebrew, your translations, you're going to read a simple man. Dwelling in tents, a, a quiet temperament, a plain man, a mild man, a civilized man. And that's a translation of Tom. Ish means man. Ish, Tom. But that's not the thing. 
There's a much, much, much deeper uh, uh, connotation with being an Ishtam. Listen to this other Ishtam. There was a man in Uz, or Uz, whose name was Yov. You know that name? Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. When it says he was perfect, he was Tom. He was upright. He was perfect. Proverbs 11, the righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight. Tamim. When you say Jacob is a simple man dwelling in tents, you're not really getting the fact that God is saying this guy is wholesome. He's, he's, perfect is a, is a hard word to describe to any, ascribe to any human, but complete, one who lacks nothing, sound, wholesome, uh, uh, and, and one little definition says an ordinary, quiet person. But all the rest of them are like one who's morally and ethically pure. So clearly, when the Torah in the plain read describes Jacob that way, there's more that at work than that he's some greedy grubber. First of all, let's ask this question. Does he ever get abundant wealth from Isaac? Not according to the Torah. Does he ever get his big pride and, and awesome, I'm the man of the house, double blessing, firstborn thing, taking all of Isaac? Does he ever get it? No. He, he doesn't really receive what we, we, we call the birthright. There's no explicit evidence of that in, in, in the Torah if we're talking about money, power, privilege. So why did Jacob do what he did? Well, first we need to know what did Jacob do? What two things did Jacob do? With Esau, he did what? He purchased the birthright. He made a trade. He made a deal. Two, he and Rebekah, through an act of no way to slice it and make it nice, an act of deception, acquired, and who was it against? His father, his brother. They acquired this blessing with great consequence to Esau and to who else? Jacob. But let's look deeper to, to, to find that answer. Why did Jacob do what he did? First, let's consider Esau. This is, these are obvious, these are like kindergarten questions. Was the birthright important to Esau in a plain read of the Torah? He despised it, right? He, he, he cast it off. That's what it says. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please, let me have a swallow of that red stuff. It says red, red stuff, for I'm famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. There we get that. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. Of what use then is a birthright to me? And he fed him and he gave, Jacob said, no, swear it. So, you swore, so he swore to him, he sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob gave Esau bread and stew. He ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Well, at least that much is clear, very clear. Okay? He did not seem to have much need for it. The birthright was not important. But listen, if Esau is, and, and I believe he is because the text tells us, 
If Esau is a guy who would rather be out in the field hunting and chasing women and eating, I don't know. I don't, maybe he didn't chase women, but he married this Hittite girl, and that wasn't a thing his parents wanted him to do. If Esau is that kind of guy, and he's running around out there doing his thing, and he knows that the birthright gives him money, power, prestige, position, he's not an idiot. He would not despise something that important. He wouldn't cast that aside casually. That would allow him to do more of the things that he wanted to do. To rule the home with an iron fist and be out here doing this. I'm the guy who runs things around here now. He wouldn't just cast that off if that's what were at stake. Also, is this red, red stuff. This is just common sense, like logic. I'm about to die. Give me that red, red stuff. Is that the only thing that was available for consumption in the entire camp of Isaac and Rebecca? If I came home and I said, Kelly, I'm hungry, and there's like a thing of red, red stew, I would be very, very scared if that's all there was to eat. Clearly, if the birthright was that important or had great significance to him, he would have gone and found something else to eat. Or he was a man of the field, a hunter, a trapper. He could just go kill a squirrel. He probably didn't care about kosher. There must be something else at work. And first, we need to understand a birthright. A birthright has some financial component to it later when we read in the Torah about this despised son and how he, he's firstborn and he still gets to have a portion. You can't, you can't overlook him because you don't like his wife or you don't like, you don't like his mom or you don't like him. That's later. Right now, we're talking about this birthright, which has less to do with financial resources and much more to do with a certain kind of responsibility. It is the responsibility that every man should take in his home. A spiritual responsibility is the birthright. And if you listen, and this is a little bit complicated, but if you listen, how many blessings took place? Well, first of all, more trivia, how many blessings did Jacob get after or during this fact? He got one from his father. He got two from his father. And who was the third one from? Hashem. God. But that first blessing that, Jake, that Isaac gave to him, you know, it, it didn't have anything special in it about birthrights. Listen to the blessing that, listen to the blessing that Isaac gives Jacob after this, when he's getting ready to go out and Go do his thing. He's been kicked. He's cast off because his mom's afraid he's going to get killed. Good Jewish mother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. The first blessing that Jacob got, which was intended for Esau, contained none of that language. It wasn't about Abraham or the land or descendants. It was like, go out there and, you know, have a healthy harvest and 
Then Esau got a pretty crappy blessing, to be honest. But this is the birthright blessing. This is the one because it's about blessing that will take place. It will take time to develop. It will take devotion. It will take faith. It will take endurance. It's a blessing of leadership. This would take a man of some spiritual muscle, not brawn, spiritual muscle, an ishtam, a wholesome man, needed to receive this kind of blessing. This would take an Isaac type, a certainly an Abraham type, a complete man. And in the description of Jacob, that's what we see by the Torah's own words. What words do we get for Esau? Is this the description? Is Esau described as this wholesome man honoring his father and mother, pursuing God and taking care of the things around the tent? Of course not. Isaac is, I'm sorry, Jacob is a man who stayed close to home, dwelling in tents, serving, shepherding, which brings us to this major consideration about Esau. He was a man of the field. He was obviously a little bit of a, like, you know, you can't, I mean, you can't help but stereotype it. You just imagine this big, like, angry Viking-looking dude covered in red hair, walking around going, Ugh! give me the soup, red, red stuff. You know, it's like, you can't help, but that's sort of how the text characterizes him. And as Ramban maintains, Esau was impetuous. He had a need for instant, immediate gratification. He was unable to see past right now and the needs of my flesh. And Rambam doesn't like Esau, by the way. But he had this eat, drink, be merry kind of attitude. And while Jacob sat at home in the tents, Esau's out hunting and gallivanting. Other commentators say the slave to his desires. He wasn't evil as they see it, but one who lives in the moment. And he was willing to sell the birthright to indulge in his immediate craving, not thinking of the future, not appreciating the value of any spiritual blessings. Because Esau, we can sort of read, wasn't into the spiritual things. It wasn't his personality. It says, one commentator very clearly says, he was unworthy of it, but more than that, uninterested in it. And that's clear from the text. And one thing you know about your brother, if you grow up with your brother, like Jacob and Esau, who are twins, you grow up with your brother, you know your brother. You know him, right? <laughs> Brothers? Brothers, Randy says. Um, there's, this, there's this Ish Tom, this quiet man. And when I think of, because that is one common description, quiet. Jacob, quiet man dwelling in tents. When I think of Jacob, the quiet man, I think of Jacob, the contemplative man. I think of the man who sat back a little bit. His brother walked in and took up a whole bunch of space in the room with all of his manliness. 
And Jacob's just sort of taking it in. A contemplative man, quiet, dwelling, dwelling in the tents. What does that even mean, dwelling in the tents? Well, it means serving. It means being at home. It means being a man of the household to do the things, to shepherd, to care. And he had watched Esau for these years. And what I can imagine when he came in and said, red, red stuff. Jacob's like, I've had it, man. This guy cannot represent us. This cannot be the line. This cannot be when people think of my father and my grandfather, they see him. So it's like putting a for sale sign in your yard. You have no real intention of of selling the house, but you say, let's see what happens. Maybe we'll get an offer that's like above asking price. Who knows? So you put it in. And sure enough, someone comes along and says, I'll pay you that. Jacob is a smart man. This is my moment. He's a brute. Let me just see. You want the suit? Let me lead the family. Let me lead it. I'll give you the stupid soup. Let me lead the family. And he's like, okay, I don't care about that. And Jacob's like, yeah. Why? Because he's the man to lead. He's the man with the connection to Hashem, to the generations, and to the future. And I don't know if Esau was the man who could ever serve God, even believe in God, because he lives for the now. And we evaluate Yaakov's actions. And we realize that from, from this, and there's a lot more that happens after this, but we're talking about the birthright, the initial thing. From this, you can see a spiritual insight that Jacob possessed, which was then confirmed through the blessing that his father gave him after the deception. And Esau's character had proved him this unworthy successor to Abraham. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about, well, it was about, just like his grandpa. What have we talked about since we looked at, the, at the, this In the Beginning series? We've been talking about that God's heroes have something in mind, the greater good. They see beyond the now, they see beyond themselves, they make sacrifices, they do things for the greater good. Abraham, leave your home. Abraham, sacrifice your son for the greater good. And Jacob lives to see the greater good because he has a responsibility as an Ishtam, a man to see it through. There's everything good. I even told you last week, I was like, you know, lesson, be present. Be present in the moment. We miss so much in life because we're thinking about the next thing. And, well, I got to do this. I got to do that. You got your family around you for Thanksgiving. You're thinking about going back to work on Monday or whatever. We miss so much by not being present. So in no way am I suggesting that we shouldn't be that. But you can't be 
only present to satisfy the moment right now and all your physical desires. There's a purpose. There's a purpose in looking and planning. Proverbs is full of it. Planning. And I can't help when we begin now to think about Jacob and his actions and even the deception. I can't help but think of our master's words to his disciples. Now, they were in a They were in a tricky situation. They were in a little bit of a different situation. But he says, because they had a mission, they had a task, they had a mind to see the future, they they had this connection. And it would take a lot of commitment for what the disciples did. And Yeshua told them, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as shrewd as serpents, And as innocent as doves. What does that mean? Well, if we apply it right here, what it means is you protect yourself, you do what needs to be done for the mission, but keep your motives pure. And I think Jacob's motives were pure, and they were pure for everyone. Even his own brother, who he apparently did wrong Because who wants to be a miserable failure and who wants to sit by and watch someone fail miserably, which Esau probably would have done? So, we get a perspective on why, why he chose the path, and we can set aside this this notion that Jacob was in it for the money, because there wasn't any money. We keep on reading and we see what Jacob's going to go through and money and stealing and lies and deception put forth toward him. There's a reason for that. But I wonder how many of us are at times Esau-ish, right? We, we, we miss the balance between now and, and out there. And, and we base, listen, we base our lives as disciples of Yeshua, as children of God, we base our lives on the fact that there's more than this right here. Right? We have this, this hope. And yet much of our lives is spent in discontent and worry about, oh, we got to fix this, all, all this right around us right now. This matters so much. This matters so much. And we lose totally the big long-term focus that God is with us. And importantly, for part two, God's got it. He's got it. And when the going gets tough, we tend to sometimes fold or, we're going to die, give me the soup. And we miss the good plan. And we miss the next big thing. We forfeit the greatness. Because Esau's don't make good leaders. Impetuous men of the field, they don't make good leaders. Some, military commanders probably, but even military commanders are incredibly strategic They see the big picture. They see the plan laid out. And they won't act carelessly or recklessly. If they do, they won't last long. Because other people depend on them. And they need to make good, wise decisions. Leaders have the long game in mind. And a man who lives by the sword lives for the moment. And his next meal is not who you want leading your family forward. They don't make good decisions. So Jacob had 
long-term vision. He didn't get a fortune from his father. He paid a heavy price. Many people say he deserved everything he got because he's a deceiver. But there's certainly more than that to see. And why did Jacob do the deceiving thing? Because that's where it really gets sticky. That's where it really gets sticky. Why did he do it? Was his next action of putting on the skin and lying? I mean, did, did his desire to pursue the right move cause him to step ahead of God? Well, maybe. But next week we'll look at that and think about it. And we'll go to Laban's house and we'll hear what happens when you blindly listen to your mother. <laughs> and you dishonor your father. But where is God in all of it? That's something we need to know for the way we live our lives and the plans we make for our future and what we are willing to do to accomplish them. Shabbat shalom.